I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx. And you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. For this episode, we had the immense pleasure of speaking with filmmaker, author, music fan, and all-around amazing person, Aiden Pruitt. Aiden has written Woodstock at 50, Anatomy of a Revolution, Our Jimmy, an intimate portrait of Jimi Hendrix through interviews with friends and colleagues, and To Know John Lennon, an intimate portrait from his friends, colleagues, and families. These books can all be found at politicalanimalpress.com and on Amazon. In this episode, Aiden tells us about when he discovered his love for music, and it's a story that you probably won't expect. We discussed how he as a filmmaker came about capturing the feeling of a documentary through books that are interview-based. This was such a fun episode. Aiden is a natural storyteller, and he tells us some hilarious stories that we won't spoil here, but that will definitely make you laugh. Re-listening to this episode, I got even more the second time around. One thing that really hit me was when Aiden said that he wished he would have had the book Our Jimmy when he was 15, and it made me think about how encouraging it is to write the book that you would want to read. I thought that was really smart. So cool, yeah. Aiden was kind enough to also stick around and answer some non-music-related questions for our Patreon. That's up now at patreon.com slash musespodcast. I think Aiden's passion for music history and storytelling really lines up with ours, and this was one of the most relaxed and fun interviews I felt. 
These books make great gifts for yourself or loved ones, and we really encourage you to pick yourself up a few copies, and you can head over to our show notes and find where to do that. Enjoy the show. Well, welcome Aiden Pruitt to Muses Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, guys. What a thrill to be on one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, oh. This is really exciting. Um, as Shanti said, <laughs> uh, we posted your book, Our Jimmy, with such a beautiful uh, little inscription there. Uh, we've been looking forward to this. So thank you. Fantastic. Well, me too, very much. Yeah. So how's it going in Australia? I don't think we've interviewed anybody uh, this oh, far wow. away from us oh, before. Well, it's an honor. Uh, yeah, no, things are going all right. Yeah. Uh, we had about 12 weeks of total lockdown, uh, which was a bit miserable, but it seems to have paid off and, and things are opening up again and, and things seem to be relatively safe. And oh, it's summer there. Yes. Yeah, it is. Uh, we're, we're not seeing too much evidence of that yet, <laughs> but it's coming. Yeah, it's coming. It's on the way. Well, it's so winter here that I saw Santa today. Oh, nice work. <laughs> I did. I went, uh, I went downtown and I was at a completely empty mall. It was completely, completely empty in this really small town. And Santa was texting in his workshops. <laughs> <laughs> telling the elves to get back to work. Yeah, so we went, well, we went and took a picture with him. Santa here wears flip-flops because it is often at summertime around about 35, 40 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is Fahrenheit, but uh, he's, he's much more casual. <laughs> I went to Florida when I was a kid and there's a picture of me. I think I'm like four years old sitting on Santa's lap and Santa's like wearing shorts and like a t-shirt. And yeah, it's perfect. Uh, yeah. It's more fun. He sometimes carries a surfboard as well. Oh, amazing. Perfect Aussie. <laughs> cool, Santa. All right, Aiden, you wear many hats. You're not only a writer, but a documentary filmmaker, both with a focus on your passion for music. We just want to know, as we always want to know, how did this all begin and what was your musical upbringing like? Oh, my goodness. Uh, let's see. Well, where should we start? I reckon I should start with the Spice Girls because that was sort of where I... So I took one look at, at this new band. I was nine turning 10 when I first saw uh, and heard the wonderful music of the Spice Girls. And I went, oh, this world is for me. This is where I, I belong and I need to find my way to, uh, to the music world in some way. <laughs> so I started taking music lessons and I tried to learn um, guitar. And then I saw the band Hanson. Do you guys remember Hanson? I'm sure of you do. Of course, oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and Zach Hanson was playing the drums and I said, "This okay, my life is turning at this point. I'm going to learn how to play the drums. So drums became my primary instrument and uh, I, I played drums for a while and then I went through Blink-182 and then I went through uh, The Offspring and then probably around about Christmas when I was like 14, I got a, a CD of the Beatles, that number one album, the red album with the one on the front. And uh, my life changed again. I was like, wow, music is more than Zach Hansen and the Spice Girls. Uh, we now have this amazing other direction to go in. Uh, so then I started, yeah, just learning to play those songs and trying to figure out what was going on. And then I saw the Woodstock film and changed again. And I was like, oh my God, life is Jimi Hendrix now. This is, this is where it's supposed to be. So I learned very badly how to try and play that on guitar. And uh, 
just yeah, I've just became obsessive about uh, about Jimmy and about the Beatles. Uh, and I decided, okay, if I if I'm not that good of a musician, maybe I could do what the Woodstock people did, and I'll do I'll I'll try and make documentaries about music. So I started doing that, and then uh, <laughs> I got yeah. So I had lots of fun doing that. I've done a lot of travel for that kind of stuff, and uh, then uh, yeah, then 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 my wife and I had kids, and uh, I'm I'm very happy to be home with the kids, and I'm like, well, I can't travel so much. Uh, especially, you know, my film crew would only be, you know, a year and a half, two years old. So that's, that's probably not going to work. So I was like, how do I continue to document music? And so books it is, but yeah, I was like, okay, I'm just going to try and get a publishing deal in some kind of a way. And amazingly, the, the publisher who I uh, got in touch with is they're in Toronto. So uh, <laughs> they're out there with you guys. And I, I've only ever, you know, I've had lots of Skype meetings with them. But, uh, you know, as soon as I'm able to, as soon as the world opens up a bit more, I can't wait to make it to Toronto to meet them. And maybe you guys even, that'd be fantastic. I will Absolutely. be there. Yeah. <laughs> wow. As you said, You've released several books all about those people you just mentioned, Jimmy, The Beatles, Woodstock. There's Woodstock at 50 to know John Lennon and, of course, our Jimmy. Uh, What is it about those subjects that really led you to want to go in depth with them? And how did you go about tracking all the incredible people? And how did you choose which ones you wanted to kind of find? What was that like? Well, yeah, it's, it's definitely been a journey. And I think, um, the inspiration for it all was like watching Jimmy at Woodstock, uh, as, as a probably, I would have been 15, maybe 16, uh, late night. It just, it was on TV one night here in Australia. And I just was like, I'll catch a few minutes of it. And I ended up staying for the entire three hours and going to bed at something like four in the morning. Uh, and ever since that moment, I was like, I want to know what it was like to be backstage at Woodstock in amongst all of these incredible musicians, this sort of confluence of, of music and ideas, just this incredible, like moment in history. What would it be like to be in a time machine to go back and hang out with these people? So that really, uh, every time I read a, a rock biography, I'm always looking for those moments of like, okay, I want to feel like I'm there hanging out with Jimmy or hanging out with John Lennon as the other book is. And I I decided, okay, I'm going to try and track down people who've done that and specifically document in the way that they tell it, how those moments unfolded. Uh, And one of my favorite moments was with Janice Ian. Uh, I've somehow managed to convince, uh, and actually there's a story in how I got to her, but I'll, come to that later if we have time but Janice was saying um because of course Janice Ian being a folk star you don't expect that she's going to be someone who was hanging out with Hendrix um but she absolutely was even though at the time she was 15 uh this is in 1960 late 67 uh early 68 uh they were both on the New York scene at the time uh and uh, Janice was really good friends with this amazing bass player called Carol Hunter. Now, Carol and Jimmy sort of had a fling and Janice Ian was the third wheel. And they're just like, just, you know, traipsing around new, the, all the New York clubs. And I, I found one of the moments in, in these interviews where I've, I've found something that I've never seen in any other book was when Janice said, Jimmy was such a gentle, kind soul which is in all the books, of course, but she also, she then went on to say, and, and given that I was 15 at the time, there was never any question 
of like that we were just friends and he was very happy to to be a friend uh in you know in within that world and i just thought you know given jimmy's reputation and i know you guys spoke to cynthia from the plaster casters and all this kind of stuff jimmy's reputation as as you know being hmm, how would you put it uh someone who <laughs> got around um yeah i was just thrilled to hear directly from janice that 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 was not the case at all and that he yeah he, he was not just interested in in women for one reason he he was actually there to listen and be supportive and he, she said that he really did take janice under his wing in that world i thought that was fantastic I think we really have that in common that, you know, okay, well, we couldn't, we weren't there. And then you kind of find like, well, what am I good at? And and what do I bring to the table? And then you kind of realize, well, I have a way of speaking to people and getting people to open up who were there. And a lot of the times it's like, you know, we can get those same rock and roll stories over and over and over again. Like everybody knows the same stories about Led Zeppelin. But what if you talk to somebody who maybe has said that story before, but like not enough times or not loud enough or not, you know, in this way. And it's really nice to have a refreshing conversation about music. Like, you know what, actually, I didn't know that. Or like when somebody thinks that they know everything about music to go, oh, actually, I didn't know that. And that's kind of nice to really kind of dig up that even after all these years and either, even after all these decades, there's still new stories and new things to learn about these people and this music that we are in love with. Absolutely. It's amazing to, it's amazing that that is the case, but everybody says to me like, you know, so many books have been, I mean, the John Lennon one that just came out, so many books have been written about John. What, like, what's different about yours? What, what yeah. could you possibly bring to the table? You know, given that you weren't born you know, during John's lifetime. And uh, at the beginning, I just wanted to get in touch with these people and I wanted to speak to them to feel like I was closer to John effectively. And the same with Jimmy. Uh, I wanted to, yeah, to feel like I, I was in some way connected and uh, that's all I wanted. That's what I set out to do. But, but you know, as you guys are fully aware, once you start having these conversations, all kinds of stuff comes out that's, that there's no room for it in a traditional biography because it's such a personal story. But in a, in a medium like a podcast or, or in this uh, interview-based book, there is room for it and it's, it is refreshing and it's fantastic. I was thinking about that earlier today, actually, where some of my favorite stories aren't about how the band made it big or whatever. It's these little in stories that only, you know, the five people that were in that room know. And to hear them share it, it's like getting in on a secret, like you know, you, you feel like, you know, a little bit more about them personally. And when you love them so much, getting to kind of enter their secret world is really special. Absolutely. Yeah. It couldn't, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Uh, I, I mean, unless there's some time machine where you do get to meet Jimi Hendrix or you do get to meet John Lennon. And, uh, the, the, the moment for me with the John Lennon book was with the Beatles tour manager called Tony Bramwell. I was somehow able to get in touch with him. And so we chatted on the phone and, uh, he was telling me, and this is not in any of the books that I'm aware of, there was a moment where he and John went off to hang out with the Rolling Stones in, in Keith's apartment in 1965. So Beatlemania is like completely overtaking the world. Uh, so John and Tony Bramwell are up in the apartment and Keith, uh, Keith and Mick, they're, they're a bit stoned and boring uh, in his exact words. And so, uh, Tony and John say, Oh, well, I guess we'll just 
get on the tube and go down to one of the clubs or something. So they go downstairs, they get on a train, uh, the London underground and, uh, they both fall asleep and they wake up <laughs> and they're at the end of the line out in hatch end or somewhere. And, uh, they, they look around, the train is stopped. Uh, it's after midnight at this point, there's no other trains that are going to happen. So what are they going to do? And they look at each other like, I guess we'll spend the night here. So they <laughs> fell asleep again in the, in the back <laughs> of this train carriage. So the next morning the train starts up again and people start getting on and they're sort of doing double takes of like, could that be John? No way. Like there's no way it would be John Lennon on like looking disheveled at six and five, whatever time in the morning. Uh, and then they get off to Piccadilly Circus or whatever, and they both get off the train and they go to a cafe and have breakfast. And then they realize they have no money because <laughs> why would John Lennon have money? So, uh, so then Tony goes off and, and gets a car and some money and comes back while John like sits at the table in this cafe for like half an hour or something. I just thought stories like that are just so wonderful to find. And, uh, and I, yeah, I felt really honored that Tony told me that story, but I was also shocked because I think that's an amazing story and I couldn't believe that I hadn't come across it in any other book. Uh, and, and Tony has a book and it's not in his book. I was like, Tony, what are you doing? Why is that not in your book? He just said there was so much going on. I, basically, you know, it, it takes a certain moment to jog your memory into those kind of areas. It's just amazing. Totally. Yeah. I think we try to look for those too. And we speak with the women to go like, has that been told before? Like, was that just for us? Or yeah, it's when you're trying to maybe want to get as close as you possibly can, when somebody like Jenny Boyd tells us a story about yeah. being in India with the Beatles yes. and when she was ill and you know something that John said and did for her, then wow, that's it, it's pretty that damn close. I loved your episode with Jenny. Uh, and in fact, after hearing it, I reached out to her and said, would you do an interview for, for my John Lennon book? And um, she, uh, she wrote back and she, she said she was, you know, flat out busy, but if you wish you can use that portion of my book in your book. Uh, and I was nice. like, well, how wonderful. So I've got that, that beautiful moment of Jenny in India with John uh, that I was, she was very gracious to allow me to lift that word for word. <laughs> Just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. And that's a thing too. And I'm sure you get asked this as do we, which is, well, how do you get them? How do you get these people? You know, how do you get them to say yes? And, um, it's like the motto is like, well, a no is free. And a yeah. lot of times if they, there's never usually a flat out no, it's usually I'm really busy right now, but if you wouldn't mind checking in with me in the new year, that kind of thing. And I'm like, okay, Absolutely. Yeah, timing Absolutely. is timing. No problem. If we need to wait another four or five months, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll email you in six months. But, um, do you get that? Do people ask you like, how did you get them? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I mean, sometimes it's a fluke. I mean, Janice Ian, the only reason that I even knew that she was connected with Jimi Hendrix was that I, um, I wrote to a, a guy, uh, a Rolling Stone, journalist called Anthony De Curtis, because uh, he's written some stuff on Jimmy. And I was like, well, can I pick your brain? And uh, he agreed. And, and we ended up chatting for an hour and a half. But, but within that, he mentioned, you know, have you, have you looked up Janice Ian? I was like, no. And he said, well, uh, it, not many people know about this, but I do because I have interviewed her several times uh, and it's in her autobiography. Uh, but you know, uh, just mention my name and see what happens. And so I did mention 
his name in the email and then uh, her assistant wrote back and said, really, the only reason that Janice is going to do an interview, because she's not really doing any interviews right now, but, but she will. And I think it's basically because you, you mentioned Anthony Ducurtis and she really likes him. And I was like, well, whatever it takes, you know, I'll, I'll be there. That's, that's brilliant. And, and yeah, Janice was just absolutely uh, a pleasure to speak with. And, and she had so many wonderful stories. Do you find your interview process varies with each person? Like how much time do you usually get with them? How do you get them to open up and share these stories that they may not even really realize that they have and then you kind of shake something loose like that amazing John Lennon story? Yeah, well, I I think it's actually a lot easier over um, over Skype or Zoom or the phone than it is in the films. Because when I've done film interviews, like you're asking the questions, but you're not allowed to really laugh and at their, at their stories. Whereas I've found myself, I mean, with Kathy Etchingham in particular, we chatted for an hour and a half and uh, she just had me in stitches the whole time. And because it's a phone interview, like you're allowed to laugh. And so we were kind of bouncing off each other. Uh, and I just found like it was, it was more of a pleasure doing it that way than it has been when I've, you know, been traipsing across the world with camera equipment and, and trying to, you know, figure out the logistics of, of setting up lights and sound and doing all that kind of stuff. It, it's been a, a bit more freeing doing it remotely. Nice. Yeah. They must be more at ease too, because this is one kind of camera in your face and this is just so we can all see each other. But um, yeah, when you're in the comfort of your own home and wearing your yeah. sweatpants and yeah, it's, I, I never even thought about that thing of, well, you can't laugh if they tell you a funny story. It makes sense to me now, but I'm not a filmmaker. So I had no idea. <laughs> that makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a different way of doing things. Uh, and, and, you know, everything that's different is, is fun for its own reasons. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. This week's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Best Fiends has challenging puzzles, but it's a casual game anyone can play. This week, I hit level 325. Have you noticed the cute new holiday graphics? They always keep it fresh with new engaging material. 
Awesome. I just hit level 380. And yes, I did notice those holiday graphics. Even the icon has a fiend with a little fiend mishat. So cute. Have you learned any new tips lately? Yeah, make sure to spin the Fiend of Fortune as often as you can so that you can open as many boxes as possible and upgrade your players. Perfect. No Wi-Fi? No problem. We've had some power outages because of this wild wind, but I was still able to get in my daily game time because the internet is not required to play. You can have fun anytime, anywhere. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Should we talk about our Jimmy, an intimate portrait of Jimi Hendrix through interviews with friends and colleagues? I loved this. I'm so pleased. I'm so glad you liked it because I'm, I'm trying to sort of en- encapsulate the feeling of, of a documentary within a book, I guess, in that it is so interview based, uh, but it, it has breathing space that a documentary doesn't have. So they're able to tell their stories in their own words over a longer period of time uh which i think is more immersive and i certainly i i certainly you know wish that this book had been written when i was 15 and first discovered jimmy to get that feeling of what it was like backstage at woodstock and and everywhere else that he was traveling yeah yeah it's wonderful and what's cool about it is you can pick it up you can go to the table of contents and you can pick someone if you want, yeah. if you're really interested in reading about that one person. Or you can start right from the beginning and you can kind of go through it almost chronologically um, from where they entered, I guess, into Jimmy's life, like throughout yeah. his career. I, so we talked about Kathy. Who are, I guess we can't say like, who are your favorites? That's not a fair question <laughs> to ask. Were there any standouts? Were there, was there anybody who surprised you? Anyone you're most proud of? So many surprises. Um, well, one guy who I have been trying to pin down for an interview for 10 plus years like the first time that i came to the states to to make a film about the blues i just was trying to i just sent out emails to everybody's agents and managers and people to uh to try and get in touch with you know whoever i really admired and and every music documentary i've ever made i was like i want to hear from eddie kramer because eddie uh was an engineer for hendrix and then went on to to work with zeppelin and kiss and all these um, incredible bands that i really admire he he's been backstage and you know had a big hand in the actual sound that's being created and he continues to work uh with the hendrix family on on all of the posthumous releases um for hendrix so uh, I mean, to have Eddie suddenly on the other end of the phone, I was kind of shaking in my boots and going, oh my goodness, I'm finally, after 10 years of trying to track this bloke down, uh, here he is on the other end of the phone. I had to, uh, and I think it was one of those moments where after the interview, I couldn't actually remember what what we'd talked about. I had to go straight to the recording and start transcribing straight away because it, it was such a blur in my mind. I was like, I really hope that I got that right because I have no real memory of like, I feel good about it, but I, I, I'm just so in shock that I got to speak to Eddie Kramer. Um, 
And a similar, uh, I mean, one of the stories that he told was fantastic. It was the first time he met Jimmy. It was a rainy day in London uh, at Olympic Studios. And uh, he knew he'd heard something about this guy who like plays with his teeth or whatever coming down to the studio. Sure. Okay. No worries. Uh, and, And then Jimmy sort of sweeps into the room wearing what Eddie describes as a funky white raincoat, uh, which I can only imagine, you know, in, in Jimi Hendrix style, that would translate to some incredible <laughs> piece of wardrobe. Uh, and he said, like, he, Jimmy really didn't say anything, like sort of like, oh, hey, like a very brief introduction. Uh, and then Jimmy plugged in and it was that moment, the amplifier is turned on, the guitar is out, and here's Jimi Hendrix, uh, the Jimi Hendrix. And then Eddie knew that this was going to be somebody very special in his life. Wow. I would love to run into you at a party. I feel like, <laughs> you know, once you, once you meet somebody who's like also a storyteller and like, like even the way you tell the stories is really fascinating. So I would definitely want to run into you at a party. Um, are you a natural born storyteller or did you learn oh, it from gosh. somewhere or years of practice maybe? I mean, I was always one of those kids at primary school who was like writing up, like I, I would be like, uh, okay, the class has been set an assignment to do like a, a one page story about something. I'm going to just write until, it, until I can't think of anything else to put on the page. And then I would like use sticky tape to glue it together into a, a, a book. Uh, and I wish I could find one of those actually, I've been thinking about it, but uh, yeah, I've always wanted to tell stories and uh, I've always wanted to be involved in film in some way because that is storytelling uh and then of course music so they're kind of my two passions as uh, i guess you would say storytelling and music and it was only you know when i really started to try that i was like oh okay like there is a publisher who's willing to you know to work with me so yeah i i think to be honest with you i think anybody can do this stuff it's just that like I mean, as you guys well know, anybody like, you know, you, you guys are doing it, but, uh, you know, anyone out there who's like, I, I wish that I could speak to someone I really admire, find their email address and find a reason to get on the phone with them. Like it it happens. Yeah, absolutely. If your passion is there, you just need drive and, you know, keep at it and, amazing things happen when you put in an effort, you know, and when you really care about something. And the more you do it and the more of your reputation that you build as being like an authentic, you know, somebody who asks like well-researched and I guess, um, I guess just good questions, then the more people will be willing to open up. And then the more, yeah, you say like, well, I've spoken to this person before, so maybe you'd be interested because I kind of put you in the category of this person. So Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The doors sort of, it's like, it's a domino effect. Yeah. So you start with one and then just see what, what comes from that. Yeah. It's brilliant. And I mean, and you guys, I think you guys speaking to Pamela Debar probably opened a whole stack of doors. Do you you guys think that, that Pamela might have been? Yeah. And we asked her permission uh, to do the podcast because she inspired us so much that if it weren't for her, we may never have known or really in, uh, in, 
known of these women in such a capacity, especially after she really released the book, Let's Spend the Night Together, which was chapters of all of these different women. So we thought it was important to go to her and say, look, we have this idea for a podcast. We want to know if you would feel comfortable with us taking all of these kinds of stories and talking to this woman and bringing it to this new platform. And she said, go for it, honey. So that felt good to have her blessing. How fantastic. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick pause in our show to tell you about Usual Wines. Usual Wines are wines for the modern drinker, aka me, and maybe you too. Each bottle is 6.3 ounces, which is a heavy pour or about a glass and a half of wine. So no more pouring wine down the sink when you don't want to finish the bottle. You know what else I've done? Don't tell anyone. I've poured wine from my glass back into the bottle when I couldn't finish it. But not anymore. Because of the single-serve format and bottle design, Usual is always fresh, no more flat, bubbly, or stale rosé. Usual has a red blend, a rosé, and a sparkling white wine called Brut. The wines are low-carb and have zero grams of sugar. My favorite was the white, which was surprising because I'm usually a red drinker. I could taste the elderflower, and it really smelled lovely, like bergamot. It's refreshing and not too sweet, not too sour or too crisp, and there's a really good balance. I was thinking maybe the lemon would make it too citrusy, but I think it really evens it out and actually gives it a really smooth taste. I would definitely order these again, and I hope you will too. Usual wines are made from world-class AVAs, American Multicultural Area in California, like Napa, Sonoma, and Santa Barbara, and are made with minimal intervention, zero sugar, and zero additives. We have a special holiday product coming early November, Usual Reserve. It's an ultra-premium, limited-edition Mount Vider Cabernet Sauvignon, introducing Usual Reserve. This is our most special wine yet, just in time for the holidays. Hailing from one of the most celebrated plots of land in all of Napa, this Cabernet Sauvignon is concentrated and rich with just enough grip. Gift it to someone special or keep it all for yourself. The holidays, as usual. Go check out their website at www.usualwines.com and use our discount code MUSES for $8 off your first order and try your first glass on us. That's www.usualwines.com and use our discount code MUSES, M-U-S-E-S, for $8 off your first order. Enjoy. So speaking of MUSES and groupies and all of that good stuff, what are your thoughts on rock and roll muses and groupies and your thoughts on how rock history so far has treated their stories? And you have this great John Lennon book out now. Are you a Yoko fan? I am a Yoko fan. I uh, I went into the story going, uh, or I, went, I approached this project going, I do not know about Yoko and I want to find out. I, I like because you hear so many different things, but I've come out the other side of this project speaking with about 20 friends of John's, um, some of who are not Yoko fans, uh, but I've come out the other side as being a Yoko fan, definitely. Um, but in the broader context, I mean, I, I would probably class myself as a groupie because uh, I, I, I do this because I want to feel close to these people. Uh, that's, that's sort of what it, what it comes down to for me. So I want to hear more stories of, of muses and of groupies to, because some of these stories are, I mean, uh, one of my absolute favorite movies of all time is almost famous. And, uh, I mean, can you imagine, I mean, if, if everybody who Cameron Crowe ran into through the course of the 1970s 
wrote their own book, the stories that would come out would just be the most phenomenal, uh, incredible tales. And uh, given that, you know, if we're coming from this, from a, a, um, a feminist perspective, uh, we're getting an angle that isn't covered anywhere near as much as it should be. And I think that it, it's important for these stories to be told for that reason. So we've spoken about all these positive stories and, you know, getting to know your idols a little more and feeling closer to them. Taking a deeper look at these rock gods, we often discuss on the podcast that we kind of bring them back to reality. We take them off the pedestal. Yes, they're amazing musicians, but they're also flawed human beings, right? We're all, we're all flawed I think a lot of us, especially right now, are trying to learn the balance of, you know, the truth of an artist versus the love of their art. Yeah. When you're researching a subject, do you ever have moments like that? And if so, how do you find that balance? Well, I, yeah, I definitely approached the Hendrix book and the, the Lennon book because they're so like specifically focused on one person. I knew going in, I was going to find out stuff that I maybe, uh, that suddenly, you know, it might change my opinion of them somewhat. Uh, and then what's the responsibility that I have in passing that information on in the book. Um, but I am so thrilled to report that in both cases, in John's case and in Jimmy's case, uh, that some of the like rumors that you hear around, uh, I, I can happily say that the people I spoke to have disproven uh, these rumors. I mean, Kathy Etchingham being the number one example of this, uh, and the film that you guys discussed last week being, um, or several weeks ago, uh, all is by my side. And there's a moment where Jimmy, uh, hits Kathy, uh, Kathy being, you know, the person who that supposedly happened to flat out said to me, this did not happen. This is not, uh, that that is a complete fictionalization. Uh, in fact, Kathy rang me, uh, the, the day, uh, actually it was a few days before the anniversary of Jimmy's death, because I did a, a TV interview over here in Australia. And so she rang me to, to congratulate me on that. And, uh, I was like, Oh my goodness, Kathy Etchingham's calling my phone. What do I do? Uh, and, and she was so thrilled. And she said, um, uh, basically we just started chatting and she was saying, uh, and this is not in, in the book because this is after the books come out. Uh, but she said, basically the, the director, the writer director of that film hasn't really done anything at all since then, which is strange because he won an Oscar for 12 years a slave and then went off to do the Jimi Hendrix film. And then sort of, we haven't heard anything from him since. And Kathy's theory is that because, uh, of the falsification of, of that moment in the film, uh, his credibility is, is a little bit shot now. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's sort of like, it's a very interesting thing that, that, you know, slander, uh, defamation and things like that can, you know, people take it very seriously. Yeah. We were wondering, like, if you needed to add a little more drama or if you needed to add something in your film that just like brought up the intensity level, why abuse? Like, Absolutely. And, and, and why, like, uh, yeah. None of it makes sense. And uh, yeah, Kathy and I were talking about this specifically uh, and we, we basically agreed on the fact that uh, Jimmy's story is so good as it is. Why, why falsify anything? 
why not just tell the story? It's a beautiful story. And, and also the people going to see a film about Jimi Hendrix, they're going to be Jimi Hendrix fans, right? So, I mean, the first time I saw that film was when it first came out and I loved the first 15 minutes with the, the Linda Keith stuff I thought was fantastic. Agreed. And then it just, it, then it just takes this complete sideways turn uh, yeah. and, and becomes, a, in my opinion, it's a mess of a film. It doesn't, it doesn't really flow. Uh, and then, of course, there's the defamation as well. So, yeah, I, I think and I was very happy to find out as well that with the John Lennon book, uh, the stuff that people say about John's lost weekend where um, there's a story that he hit someone in a nightclub and stuff like that. Uh, I, I've absolutely trawled through the research and the literature to try to find actual like substantiated evidence that that happened. Uh, and I could not find any specific witness account of that it's just something that pops up in you know one biography and then it pops up in another one uh but i can't prove that that happened so it, i didn't put that in my book because uh, i don't i don't want to just repeat something because it's in someone else's book i want to find these stories from the people who were there good and like good for you for doing your research like there are <laughs> as we saw like uh, what do we get into it what happened last week with people not doing their research first but like, damn, like if you're going to be in this and if you're going to be wanting to bring fresh stories and in something, yeah, you good for you for looking into that. That's what makes a good music journalist, a good filmmaker. And, and I really admire that about you. Speaking of that last weekend, uh, we did like a little mini episode on May Pang, who, man, she's got a good story. She was so cool. And she shows up in so many of those books behind me that like, I want more of her. I want more of May Pang. Me too. (laughs) We're working on it. (laughs) I I did I got in touch with May uh, and and she wrote back and said that she's contractually obliged. I'm sure that you got the same response, right? Um, and so yeah, that that contract uh, it was over a year ago that I first got in touch with her, and and so I was like, sweet. Well, the book's not coming out, you know, until uh, late November, so we should be able to, you know, insert a last minute interview with this. But unfortunately, because of COVID and everything, her contractual obligement uh has sort of extended but for you guys that's great news because you know she will do the show i'm certain of it because she's such a genuine person ah that'll be amazing (laughs) there's always just so many more muses and so many more stories and what do you have any other um musician heroes of yours that you maybe are gonna start focusing your research on next actually uh not a musician but stanley kubrick is is sort of next on my list uh because as a filmmaker i I, yeah i've been racking my brain for the last year i'm like okay once i'm done with the lennon book what do i want to do next and uh it keeps popping up that that i'm very interested in kubrick i love his work he's a really enigmatic character people want to know more about him and and I definitely want to know more about him. So that sort of checks all the boxes for me. So that's, that is the plan. I haven't started anything uh, in earnest yet with that. Do you have a favorite Kubrick movie? Uh, well, actually, you know, it changed. I, the first time I saw a clockwork orange, I was like 17 and it blew my mind. And I went, Oh, this is, this is cinema. This is the kind of direction I want to go in. This is absolutely 
absolutely insane. And then I saw it on the big screen about probably five years ago, which is the last time I saw it. And it is to, to an older person with more world experience, it's more confronting than, uh, or at least for me, I found it very confronting more so than when I was just a 17 year old kid, not understanding. And so, uh, in more recent years, uh, the film 2001, a space odyssey has definitely sort of come to the fore in terms of my appreciation of, of Kubrick. And strangely enough, the, uh, the guy who, uh, was basically John Lennon's, um, manager of the house when he was living at Tittenhurst Park. He was a good friend of Yoko's, a guy called Dan Richter. So the Richter family moved in to one of the secondary houses on the, the property at that beautiful white mansion where the imagined film uh, is, well, the, the film clip is made for that. Uh, Dan was the guy in the monkey suit at the beginning of 2001. The what? one that throws the bone in the air. He was a mime artist and he knew Yoko. He met Yoko in 1964 in Tokyo where they were both artists and uh, just an incredible story that that, the, that that guy was in both of those places and a whole stack of other places too. He's a fascinating character. These are like the magical moments, these little stories that, you know, piece together into just magic. I love it so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing, one thing you had mentioned is that you have traveled around the world with your filmmaking. Now, when you are traveling, are you the kind of person that's making sure you get to Graceland, to Dollywood? Uh, have you been to those kinds of places before? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. So uh, in 2009, uh, I, I got to do my first uh, documentary in the States. Uh, so I, I came over for five weeks with a very, very small crew. There were like just four of us in total. And we were focusing on the Robert Johnson legend of the crossroads. Uh, so we, we started in new Orleans and we, we went up, uh, uh, the Mississippi basically all the way up to Chicago. And we interviewed people along the way. And, uh, of course we stopped at Graceland, uh, and, and also in Memphis, we actually got to record, uh, a couple of songs at Sun Studio as well. And like, <laughs> just talk about moments where the hair's standing up on the back of your neck. It just, uh, yeah, just, and it just comes from, I mean, at that time, like it was the first documentary I'd ever really done. And so nobody knew who I was, but everybody along the way was so polite and helpful and wanting to give of their time. And, and the studio was like at cost price, uh, it, uh, we got two hours in there, uh, to film and, and we were like, well, we're here and we're locked into film. Can we record some music? Like, of course. So they, yeah. And I was playing a guitar that was signed by Robert Plant and about six different other, probably more than that actually. Um, and the engineer was like, you know, who signature that is up in the corner. I was like, no, he's like, it's Robert Plant. And I nearly dropped the guitar. I was like, <laughs> Oh, I can't believe this. So yeah, I, I try to, if I'm in a place, I want to see it. I want to know what it's all about. Um, and one of the crazy places that I got to go uh, quite recently was Iran. Uh, the, it was one of the films that I did, which is kind of a music, uh, the power of music and politics and crowds uh, and, and nonviolent protest. And in Iran, they, uh, this festival decided uh, that they, they liked the idea of the nonviolent protest. And so they invited me to, to go over there and they, they paid for everything. And I just was like, well, absolutely. I want to check out what Iran's about. 
uh, and that, I mean, in terms of like adventuring and going to unknown places and stuff, that has been the highlight for me to figure out, you know, just how beautiful a country that was. Yeah. Wow. What's going to be next post COVID? What's the post COVID adventure? Any places on the top of your list? Oh my goodness. Uh, I want to go everywhere. There's like, there's plenty of, I've never been to Canada. I must go to Canada. Uh, I need to go to Greece. I've, I've worked with so many fantastic Greek people here in Melbourne. Um, and yeah, I think I want to take my kids to Sweden. I spent some time in Sweden when I was a kid. So I want to, I want to get back there. It's been way too long. Um, and there's, yeah. And I wonder, yeah, I, I will have to sort of go and, and actually meet some people who have been involved in these books who I've never met in person either. So I need to, I, I definitely need to get back to London and get back to uh, LA and New York. Sounds like you and Kathy got along great. I bet she'd, uh, she'd want to meet up for sure. Well, guess what? Kathy lives here in Melbourne. Oh, no way. <laughs> I didn't know that. So uh, I didn't know that either. And th- these things keep happening with every single project. Uh, there's someone in Melbourne connected. Chip Monk, who uh, was the, the announcer at Woodstock, he also designed all the lighting. Uh, I tried to get in touch with him. He's like, hey, yeah, I'm like 10 minutes up the road from you. I was like, what? Uh, and then, yeah, it turned out Kathy, again, lives about 15 minutes up the other way. And uh, with the Lennon book, one of John's closest high school friends uh, lives 20 minutes from me. So like, it's, it's just been the most crazy thing that like with the Woodstock thing, I went halfway around the world, uh, and talked to people in America and then came back. And it was while I was in America that they were like, well, you must've talked to Chip. He's in (laughs) Melbourne. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Really? I came all this way. (laughs) Obviously totally worth it, but yeah, lots of, lots of fun. Amazing. As soon as the first time I heard your, the the first time I checked out one episode of Muses and then obviously I became addicted. I've now heard a lot of episodes of Muses. uh, I was like, if I'm going to be on this show, I have to tell you my number one groupie moment. Uh, Can I tell you my number one? Oh, absolutely. We were going to say, look, (laughs) is there anything else that we didn't mention that you want to tell us? Please do. We would be honored. I I love telling this story because it like, it's just, it's classic, just geek out moment i um so i was in this was in 2009 uh, and i was in new orleans doing the the blues documentary and while we were booking accommodation and flights and stuff for all that we realized that paul mccartney was touring and he would be in dallas when we were in for and we're gonna go and see paul mccartney in dallas Sweet. So we get on the plane in the morning, we get there early and we, we went and saw a few things in Dallas and then we went to the show. And when we got to the stadium, Dallas Cowboys stadium, uh, there was a line of people sort of standing there looking like they were waiting for something. And, and we were like, okay, we're about two hours early for this show. Uh, let's just join this like queue of people and find out what's going on. And then we're there for only about five minutes and suddenly like we see flashing lights uh, and a, and a, um, uh, one of those big Escalade cars uh, being escorted by four uh, police motorbikes. And uh, the car's coming toward us and, and it's going to go into the stadium. So we worked out pretty quick, okay, Paul must be in that car. Uh, and lo and behold, the, um, the window winds down and there's Paul waving and he's only about uh, probably 20 feet from me. Uh, and I know for a fact that Paul saw me because 
there was a, a barrier thing and everybody was standing back about a meter from a, from the barrier. Uh, I was like, why is everyone standing a meter back? So I, as Paul drove by, I stepped forward to try and, you know, wave a bit closer. And uh, within two seconds, a security guard tackles me to the ground uh, and <laughs> knocks the wind out of me. And I was like, oh, that's why everyone was standing back from the barrier. So... I know for a fact that Paul McCartney has seen me get crash tackled to the ground by a security guard. <gasps> got a little too close to Paul. <laughs> Absolutely. That was awesome. I then actually, I thanked the security guard and then burst into tears. It was, just that, <laughs> much, it was that much of a, a shock. And, and, and then the, and the concert itself was just mind blowing because Paul doesn't come to Australia very much. So that was, I, I got to see Paul live there and it was just phenomenal uh yeah he's one of those people on the top of my list that i've never had the opportunity but i would love to my goodness yeah Lynx and is- believe me i tried to I, I tried to get an interview with paul for both the hendrix and the lennon book because obviously um, he's got links to to both those people and i thought you have the to Hend- try I'd have more luck with the Hendrix one. I thought that might happen. Uh, he probably wouldn't be interested in, in the John Lennon book because he, he, he's talked about John since forever. Um, but, yeah, uh, and his people were so polite and they were so lovely and I'm sure that, you know, if the people surrounding him are lovely, uh, he must be lovely too. Ah, oh, that's so awesome. That's wicked. Lynx has been really fortunate with um, like her jobs that she has literally been able to stand beside so many of the of the yeah. greats. Working, he always tells me who's really tall, who's really short. <laughs> <laughs> so, who's your number one, Lynx? Are, are you able to say a favorite? Favorite musician ever? Oh my god! That you've that you've stood next to. <laughs> well, I got to do a little shimmy with Iggy Pop once, and that wow. was pretty incredible for wow. sure. Um, yeah, there's so many moments. Um, seeing Patti Smith is always an amazing thing. Uh, Shanti was yeah. referring to Paul Simon, who's about like... Oh, wow. He's a very tiny, tiny, small man. He's a short king. Big talent. Big talent. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, I've, I've also been turned down for interviews with him too. So, uh, again, very politely. But, yeah, man, in terms of people to be able to hang out with, that's amazing. Well, I hope you keep reaching for all the big ones because absolutely books are amazing. And, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. And Congratulations for, yeah. on, on the release of these books and – it's thank uh, you guys a huge, yeah. huge huge accomplishment and you're a wonderful writer and we really recommend that everyone goes out and gets themselves a copy what's the best way for people to buy your books the quickest way is from the publishers there in toronto with you guys uh, nice. they're called political animal press uh is is the name of it their website's politicalanimalpress.com they're an imprint of crow's nest which is the sort of parent 
print of that uh, of, of that particular publisher. And uh, they've been wonderful to deal with. Uh, it is available on Amazon as well, of course, um, but the, the understanding is that the shipping times are slightly longer through Amazon. And I think right now people are wanting more to go straight to just like skip Amazon and like what's yeah. the alternative? What's the alternative to Amazon and those big ones? Well, if you can go straight to the publishing company themselves and especially if you're in Canada and you can get it from Toronto, that seems to be the best way to do it. So we'll link that up in the show notes for sure. And so, yeah, that's Woodstock at 50 to know John Lennon and of course our Jimmy. Wonderful. Well, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure to be here on one of my favorite podcasts of all time. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. What What a thrill. Thank you so much, Aiden. Thank you, Aiden. Muses is produced by Chantal Lemieux and Lynx O'Leary and is part of the Pantheon family of podcasts. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at pantheonpodcasts.com. All songs can be found wherever you get your music. Please download and purchase these great and important tracks. Come find us at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods or see us at R&R Archaeology on Instagram. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Radolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Echo meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.